Fiscal cliffs could force layoffs of our best teachers. What happened to TFA? We don't know, but we're going to talk about it today. And what is something that we can be hopeful for? We have a story coming out of Philadelphia that can make us a little bit more hopeful about what's going on in our public schools. All today on the Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America. I am your host, Chris Citizen Stewart on Twitter. I'm here with my co-host, Ravi Gupta, who is a former Obama staffer and a superintendent of charter schools in the South. I should say former, I say this every week, former Obama <laughs> staffer and former superintendent of charter schools. And now he is a media extraordinaire. How are you doing, Ravi? I'm doing good, man. I had a great weekend here in New York. You know, we had a little White Lotus watch party last <laughs> night. It's, it's a big deal around my parts. I also participated in a powerlifting competition on Saturday. Yeah, me too. Totally. I did that same thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, same thing. Have not been able to get into White Lotus this year. I need to, like, I watched 20 minutes of the first episode and then I, I tapped out. Now that it's all done, maybe I'll just binge it. Is it really good? So good. It's one of those shows that just grow, like a couple episodes in, you're like, wow. Like first episode, I was like, all right, maybe it's not as good as the first season. By the end of it, I'm like way better than the first season. Oh, really? So really see, the, the first season, I got hooked and watched it to the end and thought, this is really great. So in the first episode of this one, like re- literally like 15, 20 minutes in, I was like, oh yeah, this isn't hitting the same. I got to jump out. You know what the funny, the funny thing about the first season is HBO shows tend to try to humanize their characters by saying they went to Binghamton University. So I went to Binghamton for undergrad, which is like a state school in New York. And the White Lotus character, main character from the first season, the woman reporter, Binghamton. Industry, the main character in industry, Binghamton grad. And in all these cases, when they say Binghamton grad, they mean, oh, didn't go to a fancy school. They're trying to humanize them. So I don't know whether to be proud or take offense that all these shows seem to gravitate towards Binghamton. Uh, well, they're talking about you specifically, Ravi. Take That's it right. personal, man. That's right. Um, well, listen, everybody listening to last week's show knows that we introduced a voicemail and an email to be able to contact us. And I'm going to give you that number. It's 321 321- 213-9171. And the email is citizenstuartshow at lostdebate.com. I'm mentioning it again at the beginning this week because we got a couple of really great pieces of feedback. But a really nice guy from Lafayette, Louisiana, which was near and dear to my heart. And I could hear all of the accent uh, in his voice, a guy named Christian. And we're going to tee it up right now and let you take a listen to uh, what he had to say. Really great stuff. How you doing? Christian, I live in Lafayette, Louisiana. On my way from work, just finished listening to one of y'all podcasts. I just wanted to say that uh, I never miss the show. I watch y'all every day. Uh, this one and the Lost Debate, actually. And uh, every time a new one comes out, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, into it. But I did want to say, uh, I thought about what y'all was talking about, and I thought to myself, you know, y'all all right. My little boy, uh, he's in school, and he has trouble here and there. I feel like I would do so much more if I got a little bit more involved. Yeah, I work a lot of hours, but I will, from here on out, put in at least an hour every night, just one-on-one, me and him, and I'll do to him and anything that he needs work on. I kind of do that already, but I feel like I need to dedicate that. Whether it's just to read with him, whether it's going over some math he's having trouble with, he's 10 years old. He's very smart, but he does have trouble like kids do, you know, certain things. But I just want to say y'all definitely uh, – have motivated me to 
make that shift. Thanks, and uh, have a great one. Well, Chris, that warms my heart. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is what all of this talk, 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 talk stuff is about. I mean, we can have shows like this, but if it's not really hitting home with you know folks and resonating with somebody in a real way, like where they want to do something different. I just last night had a conversation with the Eight Black Hands on our podcast about fatherhood and fathers and how we are like left out of the equation a lot of times when it comes to education. And you know, I have been that dad before a long time ago that just wants to do a good job, but most of the stuff seems mysterious. Most of the stuff like, you know, you, you know, and, and Sharif, my co-host did not give me any type of support on this, but, <laughs> but I was saying, <laughs> I'll, give to you him, support. I'll give you support. You give me support. So the, the, the topic of homework came up and I was like, what you need to be once in your life is that guy who has to take a bus to drop your kid off at school and then a bus to work and then a bus back to the school to pick your kid up and a bus home and then to get them dinner and get them bathe and have a bath for the night and into a routine and then have them have a worksheet that has like 16 to 20 questions on it and they get stuck on seven or eight and they're upset about it and they're looking to you and you look down at that page and you go, I don't know what the hell that is and what it's supposed to be. That's the only experience you need to have to make you have antipathy about schools, to feel bad about yourself as a dad, and to just think that homework should be outlawed, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the part I got no no help from Sharif on. He's like, ah, oh, no, homework is everything. You know, you should blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, why can't you teach them what? So why can't you teach them at school so I'm not that guy that I just described? And I was that guy once in my life, by the way, with my oldest. I was that guy that had exactly the what I just said was true for me once in my life. And I remember thinking, I don't know what they do in those schools during the day, but this is like, we come home, this is that we have a couple of hours in our nightly routine, whatever. And he's crying about problem number eight yeah. out of a, you know, out of like 20. So to hear a guy like this, leave that message takes me back. And it just makes me feel like we do want to be good. We want to be good dads. We want to be more active. It is nice to get another hour of reading in or whatnot. We can't do it new educationists are sending home homework. <laughs> I'm not going to take debate. This is too positive. This is too positive of a story. We'll debate homework another time. But I just want to say shout out to Christian in Louisiana. Great accent. And shout out to you, Chris, for taking the bus to get your kid to school, to work. Both ways. And then still having time. Both ways uphill yeah. Yeah. in the snow. And, and shout out to you for still having time to do homework, though you complain about it now. I, I give you kudos for it. Well, I would say thank you, Christian. And for anybody else listening, please leave us, leave us voicemails. We had a couple of others. I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, one really wanted us to cover book banning. And uh, boy, is there nothing more than I like to talk about right now than the kind of the anti-knowledge campaign against books and libraries and librarians. So yeah, let's definitely do that. And then we got another uh, hot tip. Uh, we yeah. talk on the show sometimes. Don't say too much about the hot tip. Because I'm not going to do some it. work to vet it. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> we'll say exactly this about it, though. We want hot tips because we know that that's the way that these things work. Of course, you vet them. Of course, you vet them. Yeah. But on this show, we have said that we want the public to know about the dark forces that take place and the things that the public doesn't always know. Me as a, a former school board member, I could tell you there are a lot of those things. And there's a lot of parents that know them too because they're involved or whatever. So send us hot tips. Again, I'm going to leave the number for those of you guys that have something to give us in terms of feedback for the show. It's 
213-913-9171. Let us know what's going on in your little Hamlet and uh, we will follow up on it. Well, moving on to our think piece of the week. What happened to TFA, Chris? And it's <laughs> this is it's worth mentioning on the front end that uh, TFA is seeing like historically low levels of demand and training for their teachers and we'll go through what their model is. But it's also true, it's worth mentioning on the front end that teachers union membership dropped $59,000 across the country last year. Similar programs like the New Teacher Project have also seen unprecedentedly low demand right now. This seems to me linked to a bunch of different things, including the very unemployment rate that we just talked about. But mm -hmm, there does mm -hmm, seem to be mm -hmm. more going on here. I have a lot to say, Chris, but can you just start by explaining to us what TFA is in the first place, because some of our listeners might not be familiar with the model. Let me step back before I do that, because this is how it does segue for me. Reduce cohorts of students, smaller numbers of uh, potential so-called customers for education, period. School districts aren't elastic. They're going to have to make some tough decisions about where they close and where they nip and tuck because brick and mortar is not at all elastic. And we are going to have fewer students, fewer parents. Uh, fewer people wanting to go into teaching, less interest in education as an idea, period, just in itself. I feel like a very large anti-intellectual movement, period, in general. And that's all going to be, it's going to create a perfect storm of there needing to be some deep, different thinking about all of it. How do we get our teachers? Um, mm -hmm. What do they teach? How do they teach? Where? Under what circumstances? What should the buildings look like? Uh, how should we prepare for the future? Those are all big questions that that leaders should be thinking about right now and futurist those you know on staff that they have as futurists should really mm -hmm. be doing a lot of legwork there what's interesting about tfa is it was an answer to one of those questions years ago like when it started tfa was founded by wendy cop uh for people that don't know wendy wendy started tfa on an idea that she had as an undergraduate it was part of her undergraduate thesis in 1989 and it was a little bit based on the peace corps model the idea was to establish a big member corp of highly talented college graduates who could go into um into areas where there was a need for teachers there weren't a lot there was you know there, there was a need for more uh help and assistance and to put these really bright smart able-bodied people into schools where there was help needed. And it was based on a, a summer training program. It wasn't based on you having to have been in an education program or you having to um, get certified and all that right away before you get into the process. The idea was that many very smart people uh, would bring new levels of talent to the field. And they did. And I will have to say now, after all of these years, some of my best friends are TFA members, are TFA alum, I should say. Uh, and I personally... For the record, everybody listening, I am the single only TFA alum who has never served in the Corps. Uh, and I stand by that designation. How is that possible? It's like it's like an honorary doctorate. Um, now, they haven't given it to me in paper form, which they were supposed to, and it hasn't happened. But it's just known verbally that I hold that designation. And if you ask the president at TFA, she would probably tell you this is true. Anyways, saying all that to say... TFA in 1990 when it was founded and TFA in 2023 are two very different animals mm, and yes. they have gone through some things. <laughs> Amen to that. So yeah, as background, I you know ran public schools and we, in Nashville, we were the largest employer of TFA outside of the local school district. So more than any other charter network in the state, actually. And 
I saw them at their best and I saw them at their worst. Back in 2010, which was really the high watermark of TFA, 2010, 2011, it was right around the apex of Teach for America. They were at you know tremendously large numbers. They were expanding across the country. There was an energy about it and it had many issues, which we can go into, but one issue it did not have at that time was it wasn't, it, it definitely had a clear sense of what they wanted their teachers to do. And it was to teach kids <laughs> and to raise the achievement levels of students. And they viewed the, uh, the, the achievement as a very important, meaning academic achievement, learning to read, write, perform arithmetic and math, go to college, succeed in college. Like they viewed that as an important part of the upward mobility story of America and that they were sending their teachers to the hardest hit places in America and telling them, hey, use your privilege to help educate the next generation of underserved kids and focus on like helping them learn. That was their model. Mm -hmm. Now I can safely say that just in my time within uh, about a decade in working down South, I saw Teach for America go from that to an organization that really was confused about its role and often was actively undermining the very things that they started, that, that I found them doing in 2010. They were undermining them by 2016, 2017, 2018. Yeah, I mean, I've heard this before and it's actually, you know, I'm hearing it from a lot of different directions, but I will say this much. At its apex, TFA was recruiting a far larger uh, group of talent then started happening in, say, like 2013, 14, 15, 16, year by year by year that was being whittled down. The uh, organization was being attacked from all sides, especially from the left. And the left was attacking them on things that they were particularly vulnerable about. They were putting a lot of culturally incompetent, um, bean counting, uh, you know, um, unemotional individuals into schools and school districts where uh, kids weren't looking to be colonized. Uh, and you know, like, listen, that, that's a very important kind of organizational problem to have, right? Like your business model is actually recruiting exactly that, that personality type. And then your customer is not actually the, the recruits. Your customer is actually school districts and schools. And, uh, to the extent that many of my friends, I think did great job, did a great job in those classrooms and have lots of like bragging rights for the things that they did. So I'll defend them to the end. They also are some of my most honest friends to tell me that there were things that they saw that were very problematic with that old group. Right. Yeah. Like in terms of cluelessness, right. Like in uh, cultural cluelessness, uh, insulated behavior, kind of automaton type of like, you know, um, um, interaction with families and kids and whatnot, that it was self was problematic. So I don't want to think of it as like the glory days versus the woke days. Right. Like the rub on them yeah. is that they did go woke. That started with Michelle Malkin in an article that she wrote, I want to say 2014, 15, 16, right about there. Uh, and the right turned on TFA first. They started writing these kind of like yeah. articles about, oh my God, they, you know, DeRay McKesson came out of TFA. But let me say, forming black activists. You but know, let so. me say this. Yeah. Let me say this. I turned on them before the right turned on them. And I think that even though the right, and, and in Nashville, we all knew, we were all in on this secret as it was happening. And there was a very particular moment in which Nashville turned. But just to put some numbers behind this for a second, 
Teach for America is expecting the smallest crop of first-year teachers <clears throat> in at least 15 years. That's sort of the peg as to why we're talking about this. And I recently did this process where I interviewed dozens of school leaders around the country about a whole host of topics. And one thing that was really fascinating was TFA did come up, and I'll read you some quotes from the people I spoke to both through that project and in subsequent conversations. But it was remarkable how just TFA is not a player anymore. Like, it was just very clear TFA is not a player in most of these markets. But here are just some quotes that I pulled from our interviews. Um, and <laughs> this is a lot of school leaders of color, a lot of people who have been in this work forever. This is what they're saying. Just some quotes from a bunch of people. Why is TFA apologizing all the time? TFA is a totally different organization now. For, for a while, they were afraid of their own shadow and afraid to take a stand on anything. They make too many excuses for why kids can't learn. It seems the teachers' union war against them has been largely successful. The Great Awakening kicked them in their ass. They tied themselves in knots and around accountability. I'm not sure they were ever capable of demonstrating the academic impact current court members were having. And the smaller regions are really struggling. Like, that's what people <clears> said. <throat> I, I have tons <clears throat> of stories here, and I do want to tell at least one or two of them. But that dovetails with my experience. I, I used to have to fight them to take, like, nuts and bolts classroom instruction seriously, even in the beginning. But then around 2015, 2016, I start, I, you know, I would go to some of these trainings. It was nonsense. Like there was this one training I went to where this corpse member, this whatever they call them, the 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 people who train the the Teach for America teachers, he was like this guy, self-factioned himself, an activist, by the way, white dude, <laughs> gets up and he's he's got this framework and it's like an Aztec mm -hmm. triangle. And it's like in some kind of language that wasn't Spanish. It may have been some indigenous language. And he's like trying to speak the language <laughs> to this group of people. Meanwhile, this is a Wednesday evening. We got burnt out teachers, including my own teachers, that have to go to this. So I, they invited me because I'd been complaining so long about the quality of the training that our teachers were saying they were getting and that they're getting, they have to stay nine o'clock at night to listen to this nonsense. I go to this thing, they hand this sheet of paper out and it's all about this Aztec thing. Let me remind you, not an Aztec <laughs> like doing this. Uh, and he's like, this is about self-empowerment. I had the student in Arizona when I was there and this is about me seeing him and you need to see him. And I'm like, but he's not here. We're not in Arizona. You don't speak the language. I don't know an Aztec. What is this? Like, these are teachers who got to show up tomorrow. They got to be able to run a classroom. They got to teach kids math. They got to teach kids reading. That was the Teach for America that I left when I left schools. It was an utter disaster. It was totally incoherent. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to defend that one. <laughs> I can't. I can't. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, Chris, what do you got to uh, say? I about can't, that? you know, I actually was brought in, uh, I don't know if I should say this, uh, at one point to talk to TFA, uh, core members when they were having kind of like a internal battle. And, you know, like many big organizations, yeah. not everybody's of the same mind inside the organization. They have different things going on. And a lot of it was around this Aztec type example versus kind of like the academic yeah. side. And my message to them then was like, listen, there is nothing that you can do for me as a person of color, a member of a historically marginalized population who still has not won our full freedom and is attempting to liberate ourselves so that yeah. we're full Americans. There is nothing you can do for us that uh, is going to be predicated on us being enumerate or illiterate, right? So like, like if you yeah. are not teaching well, I don't care of all the other act, Aztec stuff that you've got going on. Nothing else is, is helpful to us. Now, I was more of a hardliner then. I was like very much a hardliner, like teach, 
you need to learn to teach. You need to teach well. Yes. You need to teach that's hard. That's where I am right now. Uh, that's awesome until you can't do it. You have people that actually are robotic in their ability to do that or think about that who have no idea that they're they're causing political problems that are going to prevent their school from existing in the future. Right. Like, like, like I'm yeah. someone who deals a lot with communications. So you can teach all you want, but your school can close tomorrow if you do, if you do dumb things. But you love, you love Eva Moskowitz. There is nobody out there who has turned teaching. I don't, I don't, I personally, what you call yeah. robotic potentially, yeah. we, we haven't gotten into the details. I, I may like some of the setup in the sense that like, you got to learn the rules to break the rules as part of how I think about anything, whether it's learning the violin or learning to teach or whatever. I don't want anybody robotic, but I do want people progressing through a sequence of techniques to be good at anything, including teaching. And there is nobody who's been accused of having robotic teachers more than Eva. And to be clear, Eva Moskowitz is a success academy in New York. To be clear, I love her schools and I support what she's doing, but she gets that criticism more than anybody else. She gets you know? it. I, she gets a lot of it. But I mean, also people, anybody who's visited her schools understands that long before every, it was cool for everybody else, they still did have lots of like um, electives and extracurriculars and joy. All that mm -hmm. stuff about like, oh, you're robbing kids of joy or whatnot. That wasn't really success's real problem internally. They, they always, you know, had chess club and theater and their kids go on these like really extravagant kind of field trips and whatnot. So it was more, I'm not going to name schools out, but there were more of these schools that were the walk the line schools that had none of that going on too, where the kids were bored yeah. to death and they were angry about their, their schooling experience. And all they could think about is math, reading, uh, sit down, don't look at me funny, yeah. slant. What does slant stand for? Do you know what slant yeah, is? What, what is uh, sit up straight, slant, uh, whatever. But, but here's the thing, like she has, and she had a form of that too, but I think like, but here's the thing. I agree with you, but I think a lot of us were very similarly situated to her, also had a lot more to offer than the basics. And, you know, and we also went through a journey ourselves and, and a lot of this stuff. But, you know, our schools, for instance, as Republic, we were, we were accused of a lot of the same stuff. But at no point, like we always had elective type of stuff. Now it wasn't as well resourced as we wanted it to be. And it led to a lot of burnout among teachers, which I'll talk about in a second. And we're asking so much of everybody, not because we're some wicked lunatics, but because our kids, we felt our kids deserved everything. We wanted them to get double reading and we wanted them, you know, I used to personally teach a breakdancing class for my kids. You know? <laughs> and so I, and I used to run a breakdancing spring break and I did, I ran a pirate academy over spring break where for the, for kids who needed extra time reading, I used to dress up like a pirate, but like, you know, like, but what people would accuse us of having no joy. I used to run a haunted house with mechanical. I was telling you about this. Like, so let me say this. Some of my best friends are uh, TFA members. Are black? And yes, some no, of my best friends are black, yeah. yes. And some <laughs> yeah. of them, many of them are TFA members that I forget how many people in my universe come out of TFA. It's just not something that's like, you don't have a tattoo uh, underneath your eye, like a little tear for TFA yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, but there's so many. So I will say this much. I've hired people from TFA who saved the day in terms of their level of organization and their level of kind of just like business skill. That's one thing I will say. To me, it stands out as like one of the most successful leadership development programs in the history of like leadership mm -hmm. development programs that have anything to do with education. Like the number of people that came out of TFA and are off doing something else right now that I think is like really cool and interesting. And at the same time, I will say, it has also turned out some of the most insufferable uh, people <laughs> yes. on the left and the right 
like the insufferable yeah. kind of, I know everything about, uh, you know, uh, about teaching and mm-hmm. learning and blah, 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 whatever. And they all come from a, they're all whispering to each other at how woke TFA is now, but they don't realize how much of a cliche they themselves are too. Cause they just didn't see that yeah. season of the office. They are that season. Right. Like, and then on the <laughs> left, this hyper kind of like woke, like some of the charter schools that are being unionized right now are being unionized by TFA teachers who don't even yeah. know why they want a union. They just think it's the cool thing to do. In some cases, yeah. and I'm not going to tell these yeah, stories. Yeah, they're activists. They're throwing their fist up. They're not even they're like, good I, activists. I, I'm an activist. They're not even yeah. good activists. But, okay. You know. You ready for a story? Because yes. we, we promised dirt here. I got a All story right. I've never told publicly before, but this is, you know, it's enough time has passed uh, and there were local journalists who were hot on the story. I had a journalist actually knock on my door, apparently, in Nashville. He wrote it, like, when he left the job of journalism, he wrote a, a, a an article where he said, here are all the stories I wish I could write, but I haven't been able to. And he wrote, like, a sentence about each. And one of them was, like, tipping his hat to what I'm about to tell you, that he was never able to prove. So... Uh, so when I was running schools, like I said, we had a lot of Teach for America teachers. We were a product of a merger between my school and another great school called Liberty Collegiate across town, which was in East Nashville. And as part of our merger, I was responsible for our Mississippi expansion to start Mississippi schools and schools in other states. And my co-founder was responsible for Nashville schools. And she was very talented, but she was tough, very tough. And she was also a former Teach for America, like one of those most core members, but also a leader who used to coach teachers, right? So she had a very strong relationship with Teach for America. By strange stroke of timing, she went out on leave for maternity leave while Teach for America went through a leadership transition in Nashville. A new guy comes in and he's like the big bad guy on, you know, on the block. Everybody's telling me this guy's great. And there was like, and they were selling him based on his identity, right? Like this guy, his profile, he was like a leader of color that everybody respected. The old leader was a leader of color too, by the way. But they bring this guy in and they're telling me, oh, you're going to love this guy. And I'm like, great, that's awesome. Well, a lot of people vouch for him. He calls me into his office and I show up to his office and I was with this, this my friend Abigail Rocky was with me during this meeting. Um, so she can attest to everything I'm about to say. They call me and she runs a great network of schools in Nashville. They call me into the office and she was our chief operating officer at the time, also a former Teach for America Corps member. They call me into his office. This is like his first week on the job. And he's like, listen, here's like our happiness scores of our teachers, yada, yada, yada. He's like, you guys just are not a happy place to work. And I'm like, you know what? Like, let's work on this. This is terrible. I want it to be a more happy place to work. We're probably too hard on people, all that. And he was, and I was like, so let's, what are we going to do? He was like, no, you're, we're telling our teachers that they can't work at your schools anymore. I was like, okay. I was like, this is like midway through the school year. I was like, all right, well, let's set some meetings. Let's figure this out. I'm sure there's, you know, some things we could do short of that, but we got some time. And we were in a glass conference room and he goes, no, look outside. Did you see all those people on the phone right now? They're calling your teachers, telling them not to show up to work tomorrow. Wow. We're talking about like 30 teachers, right? And we were their biggest employers. We ran trainings for them. We had, you know, my co-founder, who was their main point of contact in Nashville, had been in the TFA world the entire time, right? So I go to him. I was like, look, man, I was like, I will resign today. If you don't fire our teach, if you don't pull teachers, our kids need teachers in the classroom. And he was like, nah, he's like, this is done. He like sits back. Like he's like some kind of villain or something. He goes, nah, it's done. And so I said to him, look, man, I was like, it was like a Tuesday or something. I was like, by the end of this week, one of us is not going to have a job and I'm going to be damn sure it's you. And so I left that office 
and I went into campaign mode and I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Who does he think he is? So I went in and I found out who he was. I'm, you know, I'm a campaign operative. I'm trained in the arts of political communications, as you know. And I found out very quickly, I was in opposition research mode, a couple of things. Number one, this guy was a Tea Party activist who used to speak at rallies. I found video of this guy speaking at Tea Party rallies, talking about how kids didn't deserve free lunch and how he had to, he was forced to teach so many illegal immigrants. I got uh, contemporaneous diaries of teachers in, in the uh, Delta region of Teach for America that talked about how abusive he was to children and how he was abusive to other teachers, sexually harassing them, etc. So I got all this information. I took it to Teach for America and I was like, hey, I was like, it seems like y'all got a problem here with your guy. And I was like, this is not, I'm not threatening you or anything like that. But I was like, <laughs> you guys need to fix this issue. And so True to form, guy was fired by the end of the week. It took a matter of days for me to get this guy fired. Teach for America gave our teachers the option to stay or go. Most of them stayed. Um, we lived to fight another day. I mean, there's a lot of lessons learned from that. But my biggest one was, and at this point, it's like Teach for America, they had no process for selecting this guy. They didn't do, it took me one day to find out all this information that they were hiring a lunatic right-wing fringe character who hated kids of color. And they were selling this guy based on his identity, but had no idea what his beliefs were about kids, had no idea that he was abusing their own f other core members in the Delta. And so to me, that was just like one chapter of many of like Teach for America's having problems. And like I touched off a couple of years where I had to deal with after that process, they were saying like, we're working teachers too hard. The hours are too long and all of that. And instead of having an honest conversation about how do we strike a balance, I had to begin a conversation where I was showing up to these Aztec type trainings where I'm like <laughs> trying to pretend like I give a shit what they're saying about teaching and learning. Whereas like, look, my, my philosophy then and my philosophy now is if you're going to send privileged Yale kids to the Mississippi Delta and Nashville to teach kids, I'm going to work their ass off. And if they're going to complain, I'm sorry. We used to send kids to freaking paratroop beyond enemy lines in World War II. If you're going to be a privileged kid and you want to say you want to work in the South, in education, it's going to be the hardest fucking job you've ever had. And we're not going to apologize for it. Yeah. You just, you kind of, that was a great story. And you, you went all Andrew Tate at the end though. Like, you know, he used to be, he used to get <laughs> drops behind enemy lines back in the day, you know, like, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? And like, look, I love a lot of teach for America people. And during that whole process, I spoke to a lot of executives who were like ashamed of where they were as an organization at that point. And, and it's complicated. There probably are still a lot of people in that organization till this day who believe uh, in the core stuff about what we all believe in. But at that point, I sensed the yeah. shift. At that point, the people who were there were these activists. And, you know, remember I was talking about that guy, the Aztec guy, like with the, the, the triangle. He was, when I looked out over that glass office, he was one of those guys on the phone telling my teachers not to report to duty the next day. The same guy who claims yeah. to be an activist you know, had no problem having kids show up to a school with no teacher in the classroom. So to me, this is the, this is the problem. Their activism is hollow. And until they make it real about results for children, to me, it's not activism. It's like, you know, they're scratching an itch of progressive guilt, often white progressive guilt. And to me, that ain't a project for educational. You no, know, my last word on TFA, you know, I have warm feelings because of the relationships that I've had with people about the organization overall. Um, I know people like you and others that have been connected to TFA uh, that are some of the smartest people in my network, like really bright people that were brought into education that maybe wouldn't have come in any other way. 
Like they, they certainly were not sitting in Yale thinking about, hey, I want to go get paid crappy amounts of money to do the toughest thing I've ever done and fail for the first time ever in my life. Because for many TFA folks, it was the first time they had ever failed at anything. Like the not knocking it out of the right. park right away, like for many of them was like yeah. this psychic break, you know, like this, oh my God. You know, and I think I saw them do two different things. Some of them rose to the occasion and had the toughest battle they ever had. And in some cases, they they broke away and became um, haters of TFA. Yeah. Uh, and they became... Uh, yeah, boy, you, Gary Rubenstein. Gary Rubenstein right? is a great example, which is why, you know, I defended TFA for so many years because there were people like him that were super smart, that couldn't do the job, that got out there and were always throwing rocks at TFA. But can you imagine running a $100 million organization and not having some stories that would that went south or went bad? Yeah. Can you imagine running something yeah. that big that is human capital centric and not having... Uh, problems. You could write easily a very sophisticated person. I mean, people have tried to take me down a million times in schools. You could take the anecdotes, and this gets to the Eva conversation too. You could take the anecdotes of any organization trying to do difficult things in education, and you can make somebody look like an absolute monster. Yeah. Uh, and so, and I and I do give TFA some grace on that on that kind of stuff. I think I just wish they gave it to us. You know that that's part of it is they were often critics like kind of throwing tomatoes from the sideline are the very schools they were trying to partner with. And that to me is a problem. Well, I mean, listen, like it's like a problem with a lot of HBCUs. The alumni actually don't give back enough. Yeah. There's a lot of like, uh, there, there's a lot of people who benefited from TFA or the, you know, the examples uh, or the uh, opportunities that it afforded them who haven't actually paid it back in any meaningful way. When it came time to tell the good stories of TFA, when TFA was getting beat up on college campuses and was getting beat up in politics and, you know, Diane Ravitch was on a crusade against them or whatnot, I remember it was like pulling teeth to get TFA members who were on the right side of the academic fence and whatnot to even lift their voice up and and actually show themselves as a model. Right. Oh, yeah, man, you know, I totally, I think that's all crap, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't stick my neck out of it. It's the same thing with charter school leaders. Right. Super parochial only care about their school, don't, you know, charters could be under fire completely and they would never step up and say anything about it. So thus, this we're living in the aftermath. It's harder now to get a college student to take a good look at this organization that has been demeaned and degraded, you know, publicly for so long with a with how many alumni now? Like 60,000 alumni probably, or, you know, probably between 50 and 60,000 alumni who all are silent as hell whenever TFA mm -hmm. needs them to like stand and be accountable and win policy battles for TFA. So of course no one wants to go in the organization yeah. anymore. It's had its ass kicked. By the way, you know who used to lobby when they used to ask me? I used to go to Mississippi and lobby on their behalf to keep TFA funding alive and all this kind of stuff. Like this is the thing is part of the reason why people aren't loyal to them is they aren't loyal to their people. You know, and I think this is like, the, it's like a classic movement thing. Like they wanted to be a movement, but never acted like it. And they also, they wanted to be a movement and they kind of shape-shifted, right? Yeah. They were, they were definitely uh, wrong in one direction in the beginning. Like, and they had some, they had to fix their politics and their communications and their selection, right? But then they threw out the entire model and basically bent in a whole different direction. And in both cases, I think they... They failed to have like a center of gravity where they were like, all right, I want to hold the line on this thing and I'm going to hold it, but I'm going to adapt. You talk about Eva, right? What makes Eva great? What makes Julie Jackson great? These great school leaders, you know, Eva from Success Academy, Julie Jackson from Uncommon, these great leaders, Ryan Hill, Kip Team, 
they have a strong sense of what they believe, but they listen and adapt their model over time. And some people will say some of them are too fast and some of them are too slow, but they don't just throw it out so that they can perform for a bunch of people who are never, ever going to support what they do. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll let that be the final word on TFA. I mean, it won't be the final word in this show because I'm sure we're going to get some feedback. Yeah. Now, let's talk something that's making us mad this week. Now, I have a sense that this one's making you more mad than it's going to make me, but uh, we shall see. Um, <laughs> and why are you smiling? <laughs> well, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting to see. I'm just waiting to see. You're so presumptuous off the bat. Let's see. Let's, let's find well, we'll out. We'll see. All right. Well, listen, this is a story that's in Education Next, written by Mike Petrilli. Uh, it's, uh, it's about the fiscal cliff that could be looming ahead of us. Possible recessionary times, uh, changes in economics might mean that school districts are going to have to make some different decisions about staffing. Part of that is that the money that has been just pumped into schools from the feds actually is going to come to an end in 2024. Michael writes that most federal funds for the COVID era relief bills, which are currently adding about 8% to districts annual per pupil spending on average, will run dry by 2024. This comes also at a time when there's declining enrollment. There's smaller birth cohorts. People like Ravi and Ravi's age people just are not producing the <laughs> kinds of kids that like, you know, his generation is not producing in a way that's like my superior generation did in uh-huh. terms of bringing new new lives into the world and for the schools. This isn't new in terms of a problem that your money that was temporary money has been used for permanent things in schools. School districts have done this before. Notably, during the Obama era, he pumped $100 billion into schools after the Great Recession. Uh, and when the Republicans took control in Congress, the money ran out. School districts uh, were getting a lot of money, and then they had to do big layoffs. And guess what happened? This is a third part of Michael's argument about what's, what's looming here, is they laid off the youngest teachers first mm-hmm. because of this thing called last in, first out. LIFO. LIFO. Yeah, LIFO. So there you have it. The recession's going to come. There's going to be less money. The big money that had been pumped in is going to be gone. It's going to force layoffs. And the layoffs are not going to be on merit, meaning you're not going to lay off your least performing teachers first or whatnot. You're going to have to lay off in seniority order. Uh, And that's where the theory kind of breaks down for me of all of this. Mm -hmm. These are like a lot of what ifs, this and then that and then that and then that. And I don't know that they're all true in each of those sections. But what makes you mad about this story? Why is this in our mad catalog? Why why does this make you mad? Well, I think it's a couple of things. I think number one is like bad budgeting always makes me mad. And I hate when people take short-term funds and commit it to personnel. That's just a big no-no to me. And this this could turn into like a little accounting snooze fest, but in general, bad idea, right? No matter what you're doing, if you have short-term funds, whether you're running a nonprofit, you're running a company, or you're, especially if you're running a school district, you need to think about short-term funds on the horizon that you have those funds. Otherwise it's irresponsible. But what happens here is these are elected officials, sometimes elected to a few year terms who are making decisions that sometimes are in their short term political interest, but in the long term are in the long term are actually really destructive to districts. And that's why certain education econ- economists like Marguerite Rosa have urged districts to avoid uh, in these circumstances, putting too many people on the permanent payroll. I understand the pressure to do so, but you got to think long term about this kind of stuff. So that's one thing that makes me mad is just the bad accounting. The other part that gets me mad is the LIFO aspect of this, where 18 states across the country 
last and first out is state policy, not even local policy, state policy, including seven where seniority is the sole factor in determining layoffs. Now, one could argue that maybe you take into account seniority to some respect, but in those states where it's the sole factor, that seems terrible to me. And, you know, in certain cases, you got certain teachers who already accrued a huge pension. Whereas like if you, if you actually said, Hey, like, let's incentivize you to retire early and let's go to the, you know, the teachers who are entering the profession. So what makes me mad is like, if we're turning these teachers away who are in their first years of the profession, number one, those are the people who need continuity the most, they need training the most. And if you turn them away now, you're losing 30 years of good teaching potentially if you turn them away now. We need those people in the profession long term. Never mind the fact that like quality should matter. Like we should have a sense of what good teaching is and we should prioritize keeping the great teachers in the classroom, not just, you know, looking to how many years you've lived on this earth as a teacher. So that's what makes me mad about this. Yeah, I don't know that. So first of all, some of the, the, the argument that Michael lays out here feels like it's going to come to pass for sure. There's going to come a time where the money's going to run out. That's 2024. Okay. So that's one thing that we can agree upon that's probably solid and is going to come of this and knowing that the political nature of our government has changed a little bit recently. It's almost a sure thing to happen. But, you know, let me ask this. There is such thing as like beefing up at sometimes on staff and reducing staff and other times. Like a lot of people are making a lot of the tech workers being laid off by the major kind of tech giants right now. But they overhired on purpose for the last few years, and they're only going back to pre-pandemic levels. There was a reason. So, you know, the news reports right now are saying like 10,000 layoffs and making a big deal out of it. But that was purpose, that was a purposeful buildup to meet the times and meet the moment. And they're only being laid off to pre-pandemic levels. It's not like they made a mistake in their hiring mm -hmm. or whatever. They, it wasn't really yeah. a mistake. They're, you plan long-term for some things and you do plan short-term for some things. We were in a pandemic. We were going to need a massive remediation project. We didn't have enough staff and things to go around and we lost a lot of staff. I could see like a buildup in staff that would also call for a reduction in staff at a future point. Is that just necessarily bad in education to add a bunch of personnel, you know? I think it depends. I think like he, if I were rewriting his article, I would actually have looked at some of the, you know, strikes that were happening around the country and renegotiations of labor contracts. Because what you'll find, and I think this was true in Minneapolis, I could correct me if I'm wrong, but they, in, in certain cities, the unions were asking for long-term concessions, like benefits, earlier retirements, increases in wages. Now, this is different in different cities, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they were using as justification surpluses that were directly linked to the pandemic spending. And they were actually saying, hey, we got all this pandemic spending, and they were trying to use that as a rationale for that. Now, that to me is a more destructive trend than, hey, I'm going to increase headcount today and I have some flexibility to cut it later on or whatever. I have issues with that. But my bigger issue is 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 locking in increases in wages, benefits, earlier retirements, and, and using as your justification temporary spending. Because then what happens is the spending runs out and then it definitely falls on the younger teachers who don't have the same protections. That's mm -hmm. the part. If I were rewriting this article, I'd do that. It also seems 
I'm sympathetic to this argument about LIFO, but it seems like he almost just wants to make a LIFO argument. I was about and to say, he wants thank to you. Use, yeah. Well, I'm with him on the LIFO <laughs> stuff, but I think he kind of just wants to make that argument yeah. and wants to remind us that this policy exists. And I, I'm sympathetic to it, but it, it's not, I agree. It's not totally linked in the ways that he might be suggesting. It's So I was going to get there to basically say the LIFO thing seems like a tag on, first of all, 18 states isn't even the majority of states. So, you know, 18 states do X and it just opens up a different conversation. Okay, well, what happens in all those well, other 10, states? It's worth mentioning that 10 yeah. disallow it altogether. So you have 18 yeah. states that allow it, 17 states where it's the sole determining factor, 10 states don't allow seniority to be a consideration at all. And in those 10 states, I imagine many of those are right to work states. Right. And I would imagine that those are crap hole states. Uh, so oh, stop it. So, we, got, so we have a list. We just you know. opened this with the Louisiana <laughs> listener. We can't be, we're, we're, we've just cracked the top 50 of Apple education podcasts. We can't start offending half the country now. Uh, well, that's we not say even they have half. crap hole policies. We have crap hole policies. We're not 10. calling them crap hole states. You but know. by the way, we are it, just a, aside on that. We are we just cracked the top fifty Apple Education podcasts. I think we're the only K to twelve podcast in the top fifty because I think they call education like self help and all this kind of stuff. So it's huge. So this is where we need like one of those siren sounds. <laughs> Like we need a horn sound, you know? Like Yes, so. yeah. We'll have Tommy add that in there. So kudos to us. There's an opportunity for me to just pat ourselves on the back. But let's get back to LIFO. I love it. All right. So listen, before we get to LIFO though, because he makes this argument that the money's going to run out. Good. We've covered that. Uh, he makes the argument that districts shouldn't have added to staff so much. I don't know where we net out on that, but I kind of think that's like state by state, district by district situation. And I don't think this is the thing that the problem I have with articles like this one is you can't nationalize the debate on everything in education. States are doing wildly different things. I want to keep saying that on every episode. States do wildly different things. And within states, districts do wildly different things about how they yeah. handle uh, their finances. Minneapolis right now in the state where I live is on the verge of being taken over by the state because their finances are so bad. They, and they have been. And the whole is so bad that they're about to go into structural debt. They're about to have mm -hmm. a a unmistakable uh, problem, not one that they can kick the can down on any further down the road. And a city over, they're not having that problem. Right. They, mm -hmm. They've approached these questions differently. I will read this. Uh, so he says, smart education economists like Marguerite Rosa, who I love, by the way, uh, who I think is a, a rock star, uh, have urged districts to avoid putting lots of people, new people on the payroll, even given the sharp drops in enrollment we expect to see in many districts, which will make hiring staff loads even less sustainable. Yet that advice is mostly being ignored and schools are going on a hiring bonanza. It's sentences like that last one, yet <laughs> advice is being mostly ignored and schools are going on a hiring bonanza. Well, I think we would benefit from some numbers. Mm -hmm. We would benefit Benefit from some data. Tell me more about that sentence or else it feels like you're just making a point to make a point. And yep. we need to, like, where are they hiring more? Well, we have seen from Marguerite's data and from Chad Alderman, uh, who also does a lot of work on teacher shortages, is that the data is really not good. Mm -hmm. It's really spotty. Yep. Districts, uh, states are terrible at telling you where they're hiring. Matt Barnum. Yeah, Matt Barnum did some reporting on this too, yeah. Yeah, Matt just recently did some reporting on the, the data quality being really bad about even tracking where the hiring is going on. So you can't make big sweeping statements like schools are going on a hiring bonanza, therefore, and then add some argument after that because you got to do a little bit more legwork, I think, on that one yeah. sentence. And then 
as we just said, tacking on life at the end just seems like one of those, like I could say, like, like we could play bingo. We could add anything like Mad Libs. We could add like, and corporal punishment, you know, like at the end of that. But it's smart though, because you, you want, he's, he's focusing our outrage. He's saying, he's saying, all right, I don't like this policy and here's an opportunity to bring it up. (laughs) But, but actually, so he does mention one thing in this article that's worth pointing out. The difference between the Great Recession and where we are now is that I, I actually started school right in the middle of the Great Recession, and what was different about that was the high levels of unemployment. Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. happened there was you had this additional money hitting the schools. It was it didn't feel like that much at the time, but you had a unprecedented uh, unemployment at least for that period of time, which meant that we were able to attract a much higher caliber teacher, and there was more demand for the teaching profession. Right now, we have three point five percent unemployment, the lowest in 50 years. So it's just a harder environment to hire people. It's lower demand, lower quality people entering the profession who need more training. I don't know how that washes out. All right, well, let's move on to something that, you know, like happy, because there's always got to be something happy on this show. We'll see. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I have to force you. I have to force you to be hopeful. Something that makes us feel like hopeful. Well, in this case, uh, it's uh, it's a story in Chalkbeat by Nora uh, Macalesco. Macalesco? I don't know how you say her last name. I see it as Macaluso is how I, I pronounce it. But maybe that's my Staten Island in me as I'm making it an Italian name, but I think it's Nora Macaluso. Okay. Well, Nora has a story called A Unique Philadelphia School Cultivates Family Members as Staffers uh, as our happy story. And this is school in Philadelphia, um, Overbrook Educational Center in West Philadelphia, that has found a way to actually um, see parents and community members and other people that are volunteering for them as more than just like extra help, but as a potential kind of pathway to get staffers who are invested in their schools and invested in in the kids in their schools. So what makes you happy about this? This to me, it it resonates with what Christian said in the voicemail at the beginning of our episode, which is people just want to be involved in the lives of their kids. And if we could find structural ways to do it, like obviously Christian was talking about just getting more involved on his own, but the more we could find ways to give parents the opportunity to get involved and and give them a, a menu of options. You know, this story is talking about 11 staffers at the school of 278 kids who are um, relatives of the kids and you could paint that in two different ways. Like, is this, you know, nepotism or is this, or a conflict of interest, or is it people being involved? And obviously the, the devil's in the details. And you could you could implement this in a way that can cause havoc in schools, or you can implement it in a way that helps the children. I get the sense from this reporting that it's the latter, but part of it is just like, I want us to spend more time thinking about, like, we always say we want parents to be more involved. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how we can help them do it in an organized way. So in this case, it's like, let's set aside a certain amount of staff positions or like give you a plus on your application. If you've got a personal connection to a school, if you're an alumni or you're a parent, that seems to make sense. Two is you, obviously it makes sense in certain contexts, especially if we're talking about underserved schools. The very same thing I just described, if you do it for fancy schools is what we call legacy admissions. And we don't want that, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, so I think that too is tutoring programs, which the school also seems to have and opportunities for volunteerism where you give parents a real active role in the school, not just lip service, PTO raffle stuff, which is important, but like tutor the kids, come in, you know, help run 
recess and be on the playground during a high risk period of time in a middle school where kids might be fighting or bullying each other or whatever, like give parents a menu of options to get involved. No, this story made me think. So first of all, yes to everything you just said. I think ways in which structural ways for parents to be involved that also has a material benefit for their kids in terms of academic, you know, help and assistance. The more invested parents are in the actual school that they go to, the more kind of psychic power there is of that family to keep the kid, you know, doing well in school. And, you know, lots of, you know, families and parents, you know, they need kind of uh, economic kind of security uh, in different ways. So the extent to which they can benefit from actually being involved is huge. I will say this. So at Excel and Ed, maybe about four years ago, and for people listening who don't know, Excel and Ed is like what is called JebFest. It's Jeb Bush's organization, Excel and Ed. They have a big annual kind of uh, gathering of education folks, educationists, as I call them. And I've been a couple of times where I've actually moderated panels. And on one of the panels, I met a parent whose uh, daughter was going to geo charter schools in Indiana, in uh, Gary, Indiana. And that is a school where you are able to get a two-year associate's degree while you're still in high school. And I thought, wow, this is an amazing story. It was one of the parents who was on my panel telling me about her daughter who on she graduated with her, I think this is true, she graduated with her AA before she got her high school diploma, right? And I was like, you have to tell me more about this school. Like, I need to know more about this <laughs> because that just saved her a lot of money for one. And she graduated high school capable of being, you know, uh, qualified for something more right away, whatever, in Gary, like, which is like, mm-hmm. uh, if anybody hasn't been to Gary, you need to know that Gary is is a place where hope isn't all, all over the place. It's not abundant. But here was the crazy part of the story. The crazy part of the story was that the mom was like a bus driver at the school. And because she saw her daughter going to college, she made a commitment herself. And she graduated at the same time with her daughter from high school to do it along with her daughter. And she ended up working at the school as a college degreed person, right? And I told the charter school leader of that, that is like, that is a story beyond story. It's like, you you know, the good story, you graduated for two years with a two-year college degree, but then your mom got inspired by watching you do this and wanted to ride side saddle with you and did it too. So now we have a two generation solution and mom also, and that was all she was working at the school. She got to see like, you know, all the kids, she wanted to be more invested and more involved. And um, man, think about all the ways in which that's a win. Uh, That's not what's happening in this story, but it could, you know, the more you get good at what this story is telling us to do Mm -hmm. Uh, in Philadelphia, the more you will see additional benefits, right? Yeah. Two generation strategies, right? Yeah. It reminds me of the dads. Remember we were talking about the dads? Where was it? It might've been Louisiana or Texas where the dads were coming in and, you know, basically shut down all the fighting. Yeah. That was Louisiana. Love this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Love this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, like parents play, it can play such an important role here. See, I'm pro-parent, Chris, even though I'm a uh, kids. Yeah, you are pro-parent. I think you're pro-parent. Um, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, well, listen, I appreciate everything that we discussed today as being like topical, but I will say that there, there is no kind of like, there's no world in which things are not going to get more complicated for everything that we talk about with education in the coming years. Uh, and right now, I just want, I feel superfluous if I ever have a platform and I don't tell people like, listen, right now we are in deep trouble. 
We have so many kids in the United States who aren't even being tracked for where they are academically, and we don't know. We have a lost generation of achievement in this country, and I don't know that I've seen a plan anywhere. And anybody is free to call and correct me if I'm wrong. A plan anywhere for what we're going to do as a country to make sure that uh, our future is not diminishing in the way that it looks like it is right now. You just can't have an entire lost generation losing ground for several years and not feel like that's going to come, not going to come back and be a big problem for us. So anybody listening to this right now, if you have seen anybody anywhere in the country, something that gives you hope that we have a plan or that the plan is coming forward, please call the show, leave it on our voicemail. The number is 321-213-9171, or you can email it to citizenstuartshow at lostdebate.com. Would love to hear anything that makes you hopeful that we do have a plan and we are going to do better for kids. I would love to see it. Number one, because I don't believe you're going to send it to me right now, because <laughs> uh, uh, I'm wondering if it exists. But go ahead, uh, 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 surprise me and and send it to us. This has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. This is episode number eight. Uh, we are always happy to have you as a part of the fastest growing podcast in education, I would say, but definitely on the Lost Debate Network. I'm a happy member and contributor to the Lost Debate Network. One that they're going to have to like get me t-shirts for at some point soon, you know, like, you know, just put my face on some Lost Debate shirts and it's a song. We're rebranding, so you'll be the first to get them. Excellent. Uh, And I'll wear it uh, on these shows and others. Again, man, listen, we always appreciate anybody who's coming to listen and to talk and uh, participate in discussions about education and how we get our kids educated. If you like the show, please uh, subscribe, leave a comment or um, share it with friends and family. It's a perfect Christmas gift. Give it to folks next week. Write it on a piece of paper and put it in a box and put it under a tree. And they will thank you. It will be the best thing that they've ever had. Thank you for listening. Uh, We will catch you on the next episode of The Citizen Stewart Show.